Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are uh, beginning our description, learning about, review of the Mishkan, the traveling tabernacle, the traveling shrine of the Jewish people in the Midbar, in the desert. So if we remember, we are coming out of Egypt, and what are we on our way to do? We had just had Sinai. We had this encounter with the divine at Sinai. What are the people supposed to do now? They get the Torah. They're free. They now understand the laws that they're supposed to keep in terms of how they behave with each other. What are they supposed to do now? They hang out? It's supposed to follow God. We're going to get instructions to build the tabernacle. But in general, what are the people supposed to do now? They go to the promised land. Go to the promised land. All right. Is it just a big old piece of real estate that they're supposed to go develop? No, because it's already inhabited. No, because it's already inhabited. It's already occupied. So they have to, as Linda suggests, conquer it. So this this is, in a sense, from this point on, a military operation. We tend to think of it as schlepping through the desert for 40 years because we know the story. But if we go back to this mythic moment in history, the purpose of schlepping through the Midbar is to get somewhere. The Midbar is not a place you live. The Midbar is a place where things happen. Sinai happened in the Midbar. But the point is to cross the Midbar and go to Kna'an and build a society based on the values that they experienced at Revelation at the mountain. So what we often forget is that this encampment is in the middle of nowhere and it's very dangerous moving a bunch of people right, who are essentially refugees. Let us not forget. These are refugees. They don't, they've come out of oppression. They can't go back. That's not an option. They'll be murdered if they go back. And they have nowhere to call home. Right? So we have a ton of refugees in the Midbar. This is our foundational narrative. Let us remember that next time we turn on the news. Yes? Next time we hear stories about what's happening, we just met with folks from JWW, Jewish World Watch, talking about Congo, talking about Syrian refugees and the incredible difficulty uh, that they're experiencing. They've been cut now from 2,100 calories to 800 calories per person. And we, for the most part, don't really think about it. We don't relate to it, which I understand. And yet, this is our narrative. So let us read this Shabbat, this Parsha with that Kavanah, that we are allying ourselves with refugees, that we understand that that is who we were. And so our commitment remains to identifying with those who are in exactly this situation. 
So when we think about them in the Midbarah, what we often forget is this military aspect. So there's a very detailed description of where everybody's supposed to be. They're supposed to camp by tribe. They're told exactly where they're supposed to camp, north, south, east, west. Every time they make camp and break camp, it is the same order. And there are standards that are raised for each one of the 12 tribes, and it goes all the way out, right? We can imagine it's everywhere, right? It's a huge, huge military encampment. So part of the question is, if you have a military arrangement where it's in this big kind of square, what's in the middle? Meeting place. The meeting place. Okay. There's a meeting place at the center of this military encampment. A meeting place for whom? The people? The leaders? The leaders. Okay. A meeting place for the leaders. So we're going to delineate a meeting space. And you would think with everybody looking this way that that meeting space becomes, in a sense, the focus, doesn't it? That meeting space becomes the focus of everybody's attention. Okay. So we do have a meeting space in the middle. But it's not for the leaders. It's for God. It's for the tabernacle. It's for the tabernacle. Thank you, Sarah. What's at the center of the Israelite military camp? The tabernacle. And what happens at the tabernacle? We have this is the actual this is the outer limits. I'm going to give you a visual in a minute. I'm a visual learner, even though I cannot draw to help you very much. (laughs) Note the prowess. (laughs) So we have the entrance from the camp into the outer courtyard of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle. There's the altar. There's the laver. This is where the priests wash. Before they make offerings, they must be purified. They must, right? They must purify themselves, their hands, their feet, before offering things on the altar. The tent of meeting, the actual tabernacle, is a tent, a very large tent. There is the showbread. There's the menorah. Oh, yes, the prowess. Now is coming out. What was the first thing you said? Showbread. There's a table for bread. Oh, okay. There is the menorah. There's the incense altar. And what's here? The Holy of Holies. And what's in the Holy of Holies? Tablets. The tablets. Notice how many answers I'm getting. The tablets. The Torah. The broken tablets. The broken tablets. If the broken tablets are there, which other ones are there? It's 10 o'clock. Thank you. (laughs) The broken tablets. If the broken tablets are in there, where are the whole tablets? In there too. All right. So that is the ark. The ark holds the tablets. 
and the yes the tablets all right so we're going to look at some instruction here and then we are going to discuss it so we are in parshat truma and our triennial division uh takes us to the altar of sacrifice and its uh accessories but let's back up just a little bit um let's start at 2631 usual make the curtain of blue purple and crimson yarns and fine twisted linen it shall have a design of cherubim worked into it Hanging upon four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and having hooks of gold, set in four sockets of silver. Hang the curtain under the clasps and carry the ark of the pact there behind the curtain, so that the curtain shall serve you as a partition between the holy and the holy of holies. Place the cover upon the ark of the pact and the holy of holies. Place the table outside the curtain and the lampstand by the south wall of the tabernacle opposite the table, which is to be placed by the north wall. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue, purple, and crimson yarns and fine twisted linen done in embroidery. Make five posts of acacia wood for the screen and overlay them with gold, their hooks being of gold, and cast them five sockets for them, five sockets of copper. Okay, so we are getting, before this we got the description of the outer pillars at, of wood and the ways that they are put together. For those of us who are visual learners, this is very difficult. I don't do well with taking information in and then trying to envision it. Like, I hate novels when they go on and on about the heath. <laughs> like, whatever. Like, it's grass, it's hilly, whatever, move on. Right? It does not compute. I have to see it, right? So, um, and I'm not the only one. The scholars have worked long and hard to try to figure out exactly how to replicate what they hear of the instructions uh, for the Mishkan. So, um, why blue, purple, and crimson yarn? Do we remember? Royalty. They go together. They, they go together. Okay. They're expensive. They're rare. They're expensive because they're rare. Royalty? Why does royalty wear those colors? Because they're expensive because they're rare. Right? Rare, expensive, hence royalty. Right? The other, so if you're going to do something, wouldn't you do it out of the most expensive. If you're going to do something for sacred purposes, wouldn't you do it out of the finest stuff that you have? Indeed you would. So those are the reasons we're getting these colors. The other one is magic, right? The color in the ancient Near East of magic is blue. <laughs> A bluish purple, um, right? Indigo. So it's, it's, on the, it's on the spectrum, right, of the blue. Because, again, it's, it's rare, it's expensive. Um, some people say it's because it's like the water, like the sky. There's lots of... We never really know why things get associated with magic and power. and But it's it's a theory. We have... So the, blue, the blue is also the thread that's supposed to be on the TT. Of course. 
Of course. Because we are a... Of course. Make ourselves a temple. Of course. All right. So all all attention is focused on this business we just read. There's the lampstand. There's the table, the incense altar, the altar, the ark. We're going to read some more. When we suggested what's at the center of the military camp, we got messages about, we got ideas about the people, <laughs> leaders. So then we got the Mishkan. Why is the Mishkan at the center? Because you're not wrong that this is a meeting place. So why the Mishkan at the center of the camp as the meeting place? When the Israelites are not allowed to go past here. Didn't God say, make uh, a Mishkan so I may dwell among you or them? Let them make me a sacred space that I might dwell among them. Okay? Doesn't say why at the center of the military camp there's a Mishkan. Could have been out here. It's it's obvious. Who are who are they meeting? At the center. Thank you. This is a camp. Everyone is centered around a meeting place. The meeting is between people and God. That is a different model. That is a new model in the ancient Near East. There would have been a shrine, right? Possibly. Um, But... This shrine says at the center of everything, the whole point is to meet with the divine, to have the divine at the center. And at the center of the center, what's at the center of the center? The Holy of Holies. What's at the center of that? The law. The law. How you must Treat one another how you must behave. The laws for how you build a just and equitable society. That is what is in the Holy of Holies. That is a new idea. Yes? And it's what was revealed to everybody. And it's revealed to everybody. There have been shrines in the ancient Near East. There have been law codes in the ancient Near East. Absolutely. The law code came from the, in the ancient Near East, the law code came from the, yes, it came from the king. The law came from the king, inspired by the gods, okay. In our case, the law comes from God, king of kings, not an earthly king. And it's revealed to everybody in the ancient Near East. Everybody was bound by the code of Hammurabi, but the ritual laws and all of those things were revealed only to the priests. In our situation, the priests who are in here are acting on behalf of the people and all the people are taught all the laws that those priests are supposed to be following. Everyone knew what the priests were doing in there. That is new. In the ancient world. Because on some level, doesn't that help the people hold the priests accountable? Sounds familiar. Right? Sounds very Jewish. <laughs> All right. Um, let's just read quickly through here and then we will, we will take a look. 27. 
You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar is to be square and three cubits high. Make its horns on the four corners, the horns to be of one piece with it, and overlay it with copper. Make the pails for removing the ashes as well as its scrapers, scrapers, basins, flesh hooks, and fire pans. Make all its utensils of copper. Make for it a grating of meshwork in copper, and on the mesh make four copper rings at its four corners. Set the mesh below under the ledge of the altar so that it extends to the middle of the altar, and make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with copper. The poles shall be inserted into the rings so that the poles remain on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. Make it hollow of boards, as you were shown on the mountain, so they shall, so they shall be made. Go on. You shall make the enclosure of the tabernacle. On the south side, a hundred cubits of hangings of fine twisted linen for the length of the enclosure on the side, with its twenty posts and their twenty sockets of copper, the hooks and bands of the posts to be of silver. Again, a hundred cubits of hangings for its length along the north side, with its twenty posts and their twenty sockets of copper, the hooks and bands of the posts to be of silver. For the width of the enclosure on the west side, fifty cubits of hangings, with their ten posts and their ten sockets. For the width of the enclosure on the front or east side, fifty cubits. Fifteen cubits of hangings on the one flank, with their three posts and their three sockets. Fifteen cubits of hangings on the other flank, with their three posts and their three sockets. And for the gate of the enclosure, a screen of twenty cubits of blue, purple, and crimson yarns and fine twisted linen done in embroidery with their four posts and their four sockets. All the posts round the enclosure shall be banded with silver, and their hooks shall be of silver, their sockets shall be of copper. <laughs> All right. Who decided that? Very specific. Who decided that? So... If we enter the text itself and we're looking at it from the perspective of the text, who decided that? God. God. As Reconstructionists, if we're reading this and we're wondering who who said it had to be like this? The people. Who knows? <coughs> Rabbi, let me ask if we're asking who. This was written by people where the... Was the tabernacle still in existence? Ah, you ask a very or, interesting question, Reuben. Or is it, did they make it up or what? Chicken or the egg? You, you ask a very interesting question. So, we don't know. We don't know is the answer to both of your questions. We don't know if it ever existed. We don't know if... <laughs> If it did exist, was it still in existence by the time this text was written? There's a very interesting book uh, called Who Wrote the Bible? And that book is an exploration of some of these ideas at its center because he argues that there was indeed a Mishkan and the temple was built to be a permanent house for the temporary house. To be a, if you look at the dimensions of the Mishkan and the dimensions of the temple, his argument is that the Mishkan was within somehow the temple. Um, some scholars who want to argue this is historical say it is too detailed and too specific and repeated and talked about in detail too much. And maybe too luxurious. 
maybe too luxurious, although that might argue against it actually having been we're, we're a desert shrine. In the wilderness now we're going a little far <laughs> over into accepting the myth as fact. So recall, there might have been a desert experience by some part of the Israelite population, but but there wasn't all these people schlepping through the desert with a Mishkan and then conquering the land of Israel. That didn't happen. So was there a desert experience by a group that later becomes influential, right, to the Yahwist enterprise? Possibly. Did they have the Mishkan? Possibly. Um, was the Mishkan somewhere else, developed somewhere else first, and slept around? Possibly. We don't know. So, If I were responsible for writing this, yes. if I was part of the committee who wrote this, I would certainly make this as, as uh, beautiful and, and elaborate. As as so in a way, that argues for fiction. If I were going to write this, I would make it right. That's um, if it, and also it's also an argument towards possibly it was true because if if you if they were going to make something incredibly special, they would have done it with these colors. They would right. They would have chosen these colors: silver, bronze, copper, gold. Remain precious to us, right? Precious metals because they're hard to deal to find and then mine and then. Um, Smelt, whatever, whatever you do with them. Um, forge, I don't know. What do you do with them? Um, Craft. And they were precious also because they were weapons, right? Your your metals were your weapons. You know, we go by the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, right? Right. It's ten fifteen. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yes, I have my computer set so that I should get up and move every 15 minutes. So it reminds me every 15 minutes. Ask me how many times I actually get up when it tells me the time. How many times? Not many times. Right? I'm showing you a video. Cubits, and the breadth of 50 everywhere, and the height five cubits of fine twined linen, and their sockets of brass. All the vessels of the tabernacle, and all the service thereof, and all the pins thereof. So what are people asking about? What do I hear you murmuring? What's the mercy seat? I, I was wondering what is strange incense. You were wondering what is strange incense. Yeah. I was wondering why that didn't sound Jewish. You were wondering why that didn't sound Jewish. Because most of the videos that you will find that describe the tabernacle in great detail are Christian. They are Christian. What do you mean by that they are Christian? Their source is a church or a... Tabernacleman.com. I kid you not. Um Right, so Art Scroll has a wonderful interactive CD program, um, but and that and that's you know very popular in the in the Jewish exploration of this. But most of the videos you will find are Christian, um, or from or from Christian sources trying to overlay Jewish meaning onto, um, I mean Chris, Christian practice from Jewish sources, right? Jews for Jesus, Messianic Jews, 
are very into this the one is Mishkan. Jewish. That is not Jewish. No. Right? They're using our text, but it's their text too. Right? The Mormons, of course, are very, very, very interested in the tabernacle and have built an elaborate reconstruction uh, of the tabernacle and everything in it. Um, so someone was asking about the mercy seat. I'm glad you asked. So we saw the ark, yes? We saw the ark. What's in the ark? The tablets. Okay. On top of the ark is a cover. And on top of the cover are the kruvim, the cherubs, right? They are attached to the cover. They called it a mercy seat. What do you think that means? That does sound sort of Christian. It's our text, but right? Okay, so mercy seat. So whose seat is it? God's. God's seat. Okay. If it's God's seat and it's a mercy seat, what are we invoking? God's compassion. God's mercy, God's compassion. Forgiveness. Love. Relationship. Because you can't be in relationship as a human being, can you? Without huge amounts of compassion. Right? You just can't. Because we're human, we mess up fairly often. So if you're going to bring in the aspect of the divine, if you're talking about relationship, then what you need a lot of is rachamim, mercy. So what does it mean that this is a seat? The mercy seat is not in this. Right, correct. It's not. It, we get we get another description of we get more description of stuff for the Mishkan, um, so I, I didn't stay just with our triennial uh, reading because I want us to get to the understanding and appreciation of the Ark. That's the kind of a lot of the point, right? Is focusing on the Holy of Holies, Bec- and this is why I'm going to go here too. If this is God's seat. And this is the mercy seat, and it's over the ark, right? Then we imagine the divine sitting there, sitting there, right? So we kind of go, okay, what is up with this? Really? Really? Okay. It's very important to know that this is Reconstructionism in the ancient Near East. Because in the ancient world, you have, oh, who can draw? Diane, it's 10.30. Come here. Come, just come here. Oh, come on. It's not that big a deal. Just draw something simple for me. Draw an ancient Near Eastern throne. Just make one up. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Hurry, hurry. Just, just a throne. Just a chair, like a, not a chair like we sit in, but like a chair they would have sat on in Egypt. A king, like a king's chair. From the ancient world. No, it's good. It's good. It's good. Okay. Perfect. But he also has some arms there. Okay. If we gotta have arms, definitely. Gold all over. 
It's got gold all over, definitely. <laughs> this is a very funny exercise, apparently. So definitely covered in gold, 100%. It looks a bit like a wheelchair, but I'm sure she's going to fix it. Yes, it's okay. Two cubits high. Are we to scale? Okay, wonderful. Okay, woo, thank you, Diane. Okay, so here is our here is our seat. Here is a royal seat, yes? And two armrests and what would have been here that Diane could not have known was a footstool. But it probably wasn't up to the chair's knees. <laughs> it's good that um, that I have a day job. <laughs> okay, so a footstool. So this is a royal... In the ancient Near East, you had the throne and the royal footstool. All right. There were often arms. What was in the footstool? The, the, the agreement between the... In here was. Oh. I remember something. <laughs> Come to Torah study long enough. In the footstool was the pact made between the king sitting on the throne and another king. That pact went at the feet, it went into the footstool at the foot of the royal throne. Of the one who won. The king who won. Correct. And here is what binds, right? What are the rules for everybody that this king controls? Yes? And that all goes in the footstool. Okay, now, tell me what this has to do with an ark. What does it have to do with this? I'm telling you that this is a reconstruction of that. What's the new idea? The pact is now... In the, the pact system. is now yeah. laws, mm-hmm. not so different from that. The laws are between... God and the uh, Israelites. God and the Israelites. And God is sitting on the seat, on the throne. What are the armrests? The cherubim. Correct. Or some someone argued that the wings come over like this because that's the seat. It's either the seat, the armrest, but in evocative of a throne. And we're told this is the place from which God will speak, will communicate with the people. So you saw a description of the ark. The ark is wood, acacia wood, covered in what? Gold. Gold. On the outside and... The inside. No one's ever going to see the inside. And only the high priest is going to see the outside once a year on Yom Yom Kippur. What did we have go on while Moshe was up on the mountain? There was this business about taking wood and covering it in gold. And what did they what did they do? They focused on that and party. Worshipped. To me it's very interesting that they had gold 
I mean, if you go away from the, in the desert, where do they get yeah. well, the Egyptians? So they have access to all of that. So again, if we enter the text from the perspective of the story, where did they get the gold? The Egyptians. They lent it. The Egyptians lent it to them as they were leaving. They plundered the Egyptians as they left. It was booty. Okay? Reparations. It was a sob. Right? So um, so they... A sob. What a... What a reparations... The BMW. It's a BMW. <laughs> so they, um, so they took reparations and that's what they had. But if we're talking about a people who live in this region, gold was, gold was absolutely part of the standard. Absolutely. One of the materials that you would have used as a precious metal in the ancient world. So let, we just recently had a business where they got big time, big time punished for taking a hunk of solid wood Covering it in gold, pointing to it and saying, Yudhe Vavhe. This is Yudhe Vavhe who took us out of Egypt. So some of our tradition wants to understand this whole business and in particular the ark as the right way to do the golden calf. <laughs> I mean, the anti- You're not wrong. Calf. The right? anti the anti-golden the calf. So this is, I was looking for a word though. This, this is the prescription. The remedy. The remedy. This is the remedy of the golden calf. Because what did they do so wrong? They're supposed to make another thing out of wood and cover it in gold and put it at the center of the holy, of the holy of the holies. So it doesn't seem to be wood and gold that's the problem. It's what it makes. And what here you have the law inside, not an animal. Ah. Even f- yes, and even further. It's not solid. It's not solid. Say more about that, Rita. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not enough. There's meaning to that. Well, one is solid wood. Something very important inside. It's not a solid piece of nothing. Mm-hmm. It's not a piece of wood filled with itself. It's not solid. And we can project into its emptiness with our imagination. Ah, so Sarah has hit on the word that is the opposite of solid. What is this that we create over here? We create empty we create space yes take your longing for wood covered in gold okay I get it y'all need that I get it but you can't make something filled with itself it must delineate a space emptiness and in that emptiness will live the laws about how you are to behave with one another. How you are to behave towards me, says the divine. How you are to build a society with me and my laws and my values and my ethics at the center. 
What does the Mishkan actually delineate? Space. Build a border. Because if you build a border, what are you doing? You're delineating space. So in the in the larger sense, at the center of the camp is something that delineates space. And everyone is facing that. And at the center of the center of the center of the holiest business in that space is a box that delineates space. Emptiness in which we place the law. There's a parallel to the Genesis story because a lot of the story of the so-called creation of the world is delineation. All right, so we're going to hold that. Rick? So I'm kind of thinking, you know, no idols, right? And golden calf, the building is covering it. But the space keeps the people out. So the people can't even see this. Correct. So it's really only a... um, so it's sort of like, okay, we get it, gold, wood, space, laws, but that's really only in your mind. We're going to build it, but inside, but you can't even see it. So it's, um, because in some ways, what you're describing is, you know, this elaborate thing, and it's like, you know, a nod to what happened when Moses went up to receive the tablets, and we're going to, you know, let you build this golden box, and we're going to put the laws in it, and like that's, you know, when the God sits on it, you don't worship the idols, but that's kind of halfway there, but can't even go inside and see it. Sarah, do you want to speak to that? You can't see it. They, the people can't see it. So what's the point? Well, if they can't see it, they know about it. And that is the big incitement to imagination and stories and, and things that never happened. And earlier... Sarah said, you can project into empty space your mind, your heart, your... So they knew about it. How do we know they knew about it? We're holding the instruction manual. That you should teach it to your children. We're holding the manual that we're supposed to read and learn and teach to our children. So not only did they know about it, they repeated over and over and over and over about it. Like we're going to do. <laughs> and, but they couldn't see it. There's something else they can't see. Something else they can't see. Because what are they not supposed to be seeing or looking to see? God. Exactly. Exactly, Diane. I'm thinking that tabernacle, I am a tabernacle. Oh, and really? I have to create that empty space to let God in. Really? <laughs> Very Jewish. <laughs> I, I feel already better about it. That all that good stuff kind of turned me off completely because I figured this is another goal, whether Egyptian or otherwise. Yeah. But in, in creating, and it's interesting, the tablet, the fact that it's earthly because it's made of stone, it is earthly. That's what we are, earthly. But the God, the words of God, in order to really receive it, we need to create an emptiness to hear it. Lovely. Very rabbinic. <laughs> That's where we're going. Rabbi, isn't the whole motif here just to create 
mystique in the sense that if it becomes ordinary, if you can see this, if you can walk past them and touch it, you lose the word and the respect for what's there. Okay, I would say absolutely, if, you, if you'll agree with me, a friendly amendment, and take out the word just. Okay. Right? So, yeah. is it to build a lure? Yeah. Yes. Well, it, right. Mystique. Right. Uh, Mystique. Yes. Because it, do you, how often do you see the crown jewels? Not very often. Right? Where do we place the Torah now? In the ark. Do we leave the doors open all the time? No. Well, you could go in there and pick it up and bring it to lunch with you. It's a little big. Um, but so, but it's that interesting, it's that interesting interplay, right? Between the respect of putting something in a special place, closing it, you don't see it very often, so that when you take it out, when you see it, it is special. And what's on the table in front of each one of you? Right. So we have we have kind of two relationships to it. One where we where we symbolize it and, and surround it with silver and and beauty and embroidery and this beautiful ark and all of that that we c- keep out of sight. And the shinantam levanecha v'dibarta bam b'shiftecha b'vetecha uvlechtecha v'derech uvshoch pachav kumecha. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house, and you shall have them on your tables, and you shall talk of them all the time. Both and both and okay Linda and then we're going to go to Diane's point which is in front of you yes well um, expanding on her point that each person group of persons make their own vision of what's in there Mm -hmm. and that causes conversation and discussion as well Mm -hmm. so that the words. God is very loud today. Um, so, so the words. It doesn't stop with the words that are in there, or the words that are in there, or the words that are here. What I hear you saying is create space around all of it in which we find and we put in our meaning and contribute that. To that empty space, Daniel. Will you put my computer on mute, please, so we don't hear the time again? I want to go back to what Ruben was saying because in that video, which is really hard to watch because it's so long boring, (laughs) (laughs) God is saying uh, in that accent that He's going to put the laws in in the Testament. I think He keeps saying. So, what is it that who's reading what He who's who's reading these instructions? It seems like the Torah has not been put in there yet. Correct. So who's, who's, who's reading? Who's God said to Moshe, here's what you will make happen. And Bitzalel, who has the spirit of God within him and is an artist, will deal with it. You were shown in the mountain what has to happen. All of it. Uh, presumably. Because God keeps saying, as you were shown in the mountain, as you were shown in the mountain. And then we get the instructions, and then the carpenters are going to do it. But now it's in the now it's in the Torah, though, right? Now it's in the Torah, yeah. So, so it's, it's uh, okay. So take a step back. This is written by people. Right. This is not given on Sinai. What I hear you saying is, wait a minute, they're going to put the 
packed in there, but they haven't gotten the pack. They haven't gotten the whole, right? So, but that, that's entering into the history of accepting this as history. We, we, we can't, I mean, you can do that, but then you're going to have to go talk to another rabbi about how they defend that because it, because they do, but you have to, yes. you have to do this to, right? To, to defend how, how's Moshe writing about his own death at the end of Deuteronomy? If this is all given to Moshe last week. Right? I mean, so you can, you can go there. That's fine. But, but it was written by people way long after there would have been a portable shrine. Way after there was a temple. This was all written down. Is, was it an oral tradition dating back? Very possibly. Okay. Was it only Moses or Aaron that could actually see the tablets? Or could anybody see them? Once they were placed in the Aron, it was only, according to our story, Aaron... Aaron. Who goes in that space? No one looks in the ark. Could not actually open the top. Correct. To see the Correct. Because if you look at the whole physical layout of the camp, everything strikes you towards exclusivity. The masses around the outside, and the closer it gets to the center, there's virtually nobody. Correct. 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 The great I want. So, but remember, I guess I I don't want to lose the tension between rarity of being able to experience something and who can see it is even rarer because it makes it more special. I don't want to lose that. But while I say that, I want to be clear. The goal was to do all of this ritual so that the divine rested here among the people. That was the point. To concentrate the divine in the center of the camp. But you can't come too close people. Correct. So I love the benefits of nuclear energy. Do I want to go anywhere near it? No, because it's dangerous. And the, that is how we understand the divine according to Torah text. It is, it is a dangerous power. And we've talked about this before. Any experience that we have in this lifetime that for us is closest to what we would call holy has an element, doesn't it, of power that is exhilarating and terrifying. It's always shown as lightning and thunder. Because that's one of the ways we can describe, right? Events, relationships, experiences, childbirth for crying out loud, right? Things that are the most glorious things we experience and yet are dangerous. dangerous. Even to what they do to us. Even if we survive it. Even forget physical danger. The ways we break open, the ways we change in response to those events, yeah, is significantly scary. Falling in love. Is there anything more terrifying than falling in love? No. What do we always talk about? What do we want more than anything in the world to be in? uh, Well, we get over that at some point, I suppose. But, um, But loving another human being is... Right? Loving what death can touch is one of the scariest things we do. And without it, why bother? Without it, why do this human being thing? I think that this is all metaphorical for what is actual. Right? It's not just metaphor. Right? It's, It's a metaphor pointing to what is absolutely true. Rabbi, I missed where the uh, 
term uh, mercy seat came from. I'm sorry, and so much of her exposition is based on that. And I, where, where, did, where is it in, in the text? Exodus 2520. <laughs> <laughs> it's written right here, people. I'm not making it up. It's right here. Throne. Kisei. Throne. But in Hebrew, it's the same. Kisei as chair, Kisei as throne is the same. And does it say Rathamim there? Um, I'm not positive what the Hebrew is, actually. Yeah. It does, doesn't it? A perch. I like perch. Okay, let's go to the second paragraph of my Jewish learning. I gave you my Jewish learning. Go to the second paragraph of that. Go to the last two sentences of that second paragraph, starting at the word but. But upon the cover of the ark perch, two kruvim, winged human forms. It would seem by that include by including these forms, God is breaking God's own law, right? Of no, no imagery, and particularly, you don't want any human likenesses around, right? It, that seems like a little ridiculous. Then why are they on the top of the ark? Are cherubim supposedly human? They, they are. It could be, yes. With you know, with wings, we we think it might be more of a. Something a little more terrifying. It's supposed in the ancient world, Kruvim were they originate from something that is a guard of a sacred space. They are, they are not happy fat babies with bows and arrows. Gargoyles. They are more like gargoyles, right? They are the Sphinx was supposed to be terrifying, right? Okay, but but these definitely have human, you know, form as well. So there's a possible relation to this seeming contradiction in the very details of space and shape that make this parasha and its focus on design so fascinating. From above the cover, says God, from between the two kruvim that are on top of the Ark of the Covenant, God will meet with humanity. The voice of God emerges not from the mouth of any graven image, but from the empty space between two faces. From the place of human encounter emerges the divine voice. Certainly, in every act of true listening, of honest speaking, and thus in every act of compassion, in every heartfelt encounter, in every ethical interaction, we can hear God's voice. In other words, if idolatry is to hear the voice of God emerging from a block of gold or a block of wood covered in gold, I'll argue, then the opposite of idolatry is to see God's face in every human being, to hear God's voice emerging from the relationship of any two beings, face to face, eye to eye, ish el achiv, from one person to another person. Drop down to Mishkan as model. Though the tablets contain only 10 laws, they are the symbol of the covenantal relationship that guides Israel's very behavior. Drop down a little bit. In that sense, the core of the Mishkan is a monument to divine ethical vigilance. 
The ark then is not a platform for God crowned by two idols, but a complex model for divine relationship. God dwells among us when we build relationships that are founded on morality and focused on the encounter. Right? So Mishkan as model. Drop down to to actualize its lesson. To actualize its lesson, we must demand of our own governments an equivalent commitment to both the human encounter and the ethical foundations upon which it must rest. The Parsha's attention to detail speaks to the kind of vigilance our own society must have, ensuring that this ethical relational commitment is present in our governing structures at all levels, in every aspect. As boring, David... As, <laughs> as boring as it is. I don't know about you, but I find so much of the electoral process tedious at best. And the debates, click. I just can't even, yelling, arguing, fine point, but you don't have a plan for that. Yeah, well, mine's going to cost $100 billion. Well, how are you going to put It's like, that's all lovely, but like, really, it's just a bunch of... But our teaching is that you read about those stupid sockets and rings and posts every year, twice. Once when we get the instruction, once when it's built. And they made the sockets. And on and on and on. It's tedious. But really, that's life. If this is going to permeate every level of our society, then we need to be paying attention to those debates. We need to be paying attention to what the candidates say. We need to pay attention to the plan that they have and do we support it or don't we? Do we agree with it or don't we? We should be going to things to participate in our electoral process, not clicking it off because we'd rather watch Scandal. Let's just say that that could happen. We must use this as our model for the way elections are carried out, the way checks and balances are calculated, the commitment to truthful reports in all public communications, and the way domestic and international policies are developed and implemented. All systems should exemplify this commitment, ensuring the safety, freedom, and dignity of all people. We invoke the Mishkan by studying it, by building our world in its image, by choosing to adopt its particular architectural styles and values that it embodies, we make ourselves in the image of the master architect. To Diane's point. We are to each be a mikdash me'at. We are each to be a small mishkan to make room, to empty out, to make space for the divine. When we are a thing filled with itself, it leads to idolatry, always. Always, always, when we empty out and allow in and allow to come to the surface, those things evocative for us of holiness, of goodness, of compassion, of justice, of righteousness, of divinity, each of us is a mikdash, and together we can create a world based on the model of Mishkan. Shabbat Shalom.
You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.